electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Everybody, I'm Kelly Evans, and we are all over these major market moves today. The dollar close to parity with the euro, bond yield curves inverting or dropping sharply, oil collapsing again way below $100 a barrel. All this as we head into earnings season and await the big CPI report as well. So what are these big moves telling us? We've got some theories and some answers. Today is also Amazon's Prime Day. Doesn't seem to be as big a deal as in the past, and maybe that's by design. Does the company still want retail to be its loss leader? And Bill Ackman's SPAC couldn't make a deal, so it's giving back the money. Are there really zero opportunities to be had, or is the SPAC model flawed? But first, the markets, where we're now seeing a lot of green, down. Yeah, a lot of green. It's modest right now, but we'll take it after yesterday's losses, right, Kelly? As we kind of watch things play out in yesterday's trade. The Dow Industrial is up about 150 points. Again, one half of 1% advances there. Right now, 31,330 or thereabouts. The S&P 500, 3862, up about eight handles. Just about one quarter of 1%. Similar percentage advances for the NASDAQ composite overall up 32 points, 11,408 the last trade. So, again, positive. It's not gangbusters, but the bulls will maybe take it given what we've seen over the last several days here in terms of market action. One place we are seeing a little bit more of that activity is in the gold side of things. Now, Kelly did mention that dollar strength translating into 20-year lows for the euro. The dollar advancing advancing does have an impact on commodity prices like gold. Now, gold has been historically viewed as an inflation hedge. And if the 17% declines in the price of gold over the last four months are indicative of anything, maybe it's that that inflation narrative could be peaking for the time being. So watch those gold prices. And by the way, gold prices lower to the tune of a nine-month low. You've got to go all the way back to the end of September of last year to see gold prices this low. So keep an eye on that. And the gold miners, by the way, many of the bigger ones lower on the session. And then on the commodity side of things, still... Check out what's happening with oil prices right now because WTI U.S. benchmark crude prices, $95.91, down about 7 to 8%. Hess, APA Corp, EOG Resources, Chevron, among some of the worst decliners in the S&P 500 overall. I would also point out that for WTI crude, Kelly, we are getting just a few dollars away from that 200-day moving average or longer-term trend line for U.S. benchmark crude. If we go below that right now, if we go below that, it would be the first time we've done so since before Christmas of last year. So this is a big deal. We'll see if that crude trade goes any lower than where we are right now, Kel. I'll send things back over. We'll have more on that in just a moment. Just a stunningly quick reversal. Dom, thanks. Now, stocks overall are essentially flat over the past month, even as commodity prices have collapsed and bond yields have dropped sharply. Is that a good sign or are they simply the next shoe to drop? Let's ask Joanne Feeney. She's partner and portfolio manager at Advisors Capital Management. Joanne, it's good to see you. And I mean, you could read it as a pretty good sign that this reset has helped stocks maybe find a new footing, unless you think they're about to uh, catch up with the trade, so to speak. Well, I think the stocks had the first uh, move down out of the gate. Yeah, fair right, enough. With the, yeah, the initial talk about the interest rates going higher back in November, right, caused a lot of these growth-oriented stocks to come down. And then we had the war and recession fears and how much was the Fed going to raise rates. I mean, 
you know, obviously we've had a very big sell-off, which has made, you know, for some very attractive opportunities out there for the long-term investor, but certainly not been a, a fun ride here these last several months. I guess that's why it's, it's really great that we get earnings right now, because maybe that can help tell us one way or the other. Not so much what they're going to say about last quarter, obviously, but are we going to see estimates revised up or coming down? Yeah, you know, Kelly, that is going to be the critical question. Uh, this earnings season, I think, is going to help determine what the equity markets do for the rest of the year. The two big questions that are out there that I think companies are going to shed some light on, number one, what is happening to consumer spending? We know uh, consumers are being pinched by inflation, uh, particularly energy and food, but we're also seeing consumer spending elsewhere hold up reasonably well. It's really a tale of two consumers. Middle class and upper class really aren't going to change their spending patterns very much. So you have to really pick and choose which stocks you want to be exposed to in the consumer sector. Uh, and we're going to learn about what happened last quarter. And obviously, the guidance for this quarter is going to be critical and for the rest of the year. The second question is margins. How much are firms able to pass on those higher cost increases, whether it's materials, labor, transportation, uh, and also the foreign exchange effect uh, to the extent that companies have foreign sales being hurt by that strong dollar. So we're going to learn a lot about the outlook for the rest of the year, I think, with this earnings season. And I think the market's sort of prepared for that. Earnings actually have come down a little bit. Outside of the energy sector, earnings have been cut. Well, I mean, are you overall pretty bullish on the market or how would you describe Because Hugh Johnson was on yesterday and his view is that we aren't going to see major deterioration in earnings from here on out. And so he's, you know, somewhat constructive that we'll be a little bit higher year end than we are today. I'm curious how your view would stack up with his. You know, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty. There's some real risks out there. Uh, clearly, some consumers are being hurt, and that's going to hurt some companies. And so earning estimates will likely fall for a large swath of companies that are more sensitive to that part of the market. But, you know, we're also seeing strength still in data center, although uh, ServiceNow obviously created some concerns about the software side of that world. And so I, I'm not so sanguine about the, the outlook for earnings. Hmm. And I think companies have a free pass here to give very conservative guidance. Uh, folks are worried about recession. I think, you know, for our investors, we have a lot of them in higher dividend yielding portfolios. And so they've been able to really to ride out some of this volatility. Uh, living off the income they're getting from those dividends has allowed them to say, okay, I'm gonna wait this out. So for the long-term investor, I think this is actually a particularly attractive time well, to make sure to have good exposure to equities. And so basically you're a little bit more cautious overall. That said, you do have some names you think either valuation-wise or maybe secular growth names, uh, insurance calls, if you want to call it that. Um, William Sonoma, Borg Warner. Surprised to see Match Group pop up uh, for you as as one that you think is, is cheap here. Why? Yeah, obviously Match has the highest valuation, but also the highest growth of that group. And, you know, Match is, uh, is serving a younger crowd, right, emerging from the pandemic, getting back to in-person events really does help their business, even though, you know, a lot of it is online. It turns out they create a lot of events for folks to go to. And, you know, so exiting the pandemic to some degree, although obviously we still have the Omicron B5 now to be concerned about, but people are getting together more in person, and that does help their business model. And it's a relatively low-cost uh, product and particularly for the younger crowd where they really want to get back out and socialize, uh, we think that's a good one. William Sonova is also a controversial call, being in the housing-related area. We do think the housing market uh, in stocks have been sold off too much. There's a long-term tailwind to serve the millennials and, and the younger crowd that need to get into houses. And after they get into a house, they buy stuff for the house. 
And it also serves a higher income clientele, which really is not going to be affected that much by inflation and food and energy prices. No, it, it, t listen, to me, it makes a lot of sense. You also, you like Amazon, worth a mention here because of Prime Day, Microsoft, uh, Broadcom, you know, some uh, the big defense names as well. You think if we kind of get into a, a, a pickle there, uh, let's just say we're already in one. Uh, we have to leave it there, Joanne, but I very much appreciate your time today. We'll check back in soon. Joanne Feeney on these markets. Now, in the meantime, we had a 10-year note go up for auction top of the hour. Let's get out to Rick Santelli at the CME. Rick, how'd it go? Well, when a tree falls in the forest, if there's nobody around to hear it as it goes, well, if you have an auction and nobody shows up, because that seems to be what happened with the 10-year note auction. Let's go to the beginning of the story, shall we? 33 billion tens. The when issued market was trading around 293 and a half. So just under 2.94%. It priced at 2.96%. Higher yield, lower price. It was messy on pricing, and pretty much every aspect other than one was messy. You had the lowest bid to cover since DISA 2020 at 2.34. 61.3 on Indirex, the lowest since April of 21. Uh, the dealers took a 207 chunk of this auction. That's the biggest chunk of the buffet they had to take since April of 21. The only good category here was direct bidders at 18%, a little better than 10 auction average. You see the chart there. You see the way rates jumped after the auction results hit the wires. And I guess the only question to ask is, who would be crazy enough to get aggressive in a 10-year note auction before tomorrow's CPI? Well, obviously, nobody. Kelly, yeah. back to you. And so for everything that's and happened... the grade in was D minus, by the way. The grade was dog minus, D minus. <laughs> Better than the F. Uh, it sounded like that's where we were headed there for a moment. So, Rick, all this is happening when uh, currency markets are probably an even bigger headline this morning. We did briefly hit Euro parity, right? As a matter of fact, you can't make this stuff up, uh, uh, Kelly. As you look at a 24-hour chart, the low today... The low is 100, right on the wow. nose. Computers have a big presence in computer trade. Now, uh, here's another aspect. The last time the euro actually closed below 100, below parity, was December 3rd, 2002. You know where the 10-year yield was on their boon on that session? It was 4.5%. 4.5%. Wow. And I think that really drives the point home. You know, we're around 113 now, 1.13% in a boon and the rates have been coming down rather dramatically from 1.77 intraday high not that long ago, about four weeks ago. The point here is, is if you think our Fed has a tough job, the ECB job's way worse. They have to deal with the southern economies, try to hold their interest rates in some type of zone that isn't horrible for their economies. While all that's going on, they need to supposedly quit buying. They call this whole process fragmentation, and the market is not buying into it going very well. Yeah, not to mention an energy crisis, uh, full blast. No, it's a horrible situation. <laughs> yeah. and, we no, and you know what's more horrible, though, Kelly? Is that, and you, you said it, and I'm glad you did. At the bottom of all of this is the energy crisis, and that is like the coming attractions for a country near you. We need to pay closer attention to what's going on in Europe to try to avoid some of the messiness because many states in the U.S. seem to have the same philosophy on energy that Germany did before all of the crisis hit. 
No, we, it's a collision of so many different uh, problems and possibilities. Rick, for now, thank you, our Rick Santelli. And let's stick with energy because the White House today reportedly is out with a memo saying that gasoline prices are likely to account for the entire annual increase in tomorrow's CPI report. They're also emphasizing that gas prices are expected to keep falling in the weeks ahead. And sure enough, oil today is way back below 100 a barrel, down to about 96 and its lowest since April. Pippa Stevens is back with me now. Pippa, what is driving these renewed declines. Yeah, Kelly, well, it is a big decline today for WTI, down almost 8%, and it's a confluence of related factors behind the move. We've got demand concerns out of China amid a spike in COVID cases. A stronger dollar makes oil more expensive for foreign buyers. Recession fears are sparking concerns about an overall slowdown in demand. The dip below 100 has also prompted selling from momentum funds. And thin liquidity means individual trades can have an outsized impact. And with Biden preparing to meet with Saudi officials, there's limited appetite to buy the dip. So where does that leave us? Well, WTI is right around $96. The contract closed at $92.24 on February 23rd, the day before Russia invaded. Less than two weeks later, it hit $130. It's been volatile ever since, bouncing both above and below that key $100 level. But with this latest leg lower, it is approaching, Kelly, the 200-day moving average. It could fall below that level for the first time of the year. It's a bit paradoxical because we're talking about an energy crisis sparked in part or reflecting higher prices. And now here we see them unwinding. Could this help, you know, kick the can down the road at least? I mean, even though so much of this is about natural gas, at least if oil prices are dropping, does that tell us that maybe this isn't going to come to the head that it still might? It's just it's hard to look at the next six months and, and see anything but fear and dread for some of mm -hmm. these European economies if they don't have the supplies that they need. And yet, I don't know, it's we we still have our trade, our oil trade today moving the other way. Yeah, fear and dread and then also a huge hit for consumers in Europe. And you just wonder how people are going to pay these bills that are spiking. And I think that the decline in oil is a good sign for consumers here, but also how good of a sign is it really? You know, we're still around that $96 level. And the year at the beginning of the year, oil was at 75. So we do have to put all these moves in perspective. It is a big decline from that 130 level, but it remains elevated. And so gas prices are, Bob, gasoline futures are down another 5% today. But again, they're still higher. And so this is maybe a welcome sign, but longer term. You That's know. a great point. We're driving, you know, last night saying, wow, gas is only 450. I mean. <laughs> exactly. We have a short memory sometimes, yes. but it's still elevated. No, it's a great point. Pippa, thank you. Our Pippa Stevens, we appreciate it. Coming up, value is beating growth so far this year. But which stocks should you target? Target in a slowing economy. We've got three picks for your portfolio. But first, here's a live look at the Amazon Fulfillment Center near Trenton, New Jersey, with Prime Day officially underway. Up next, we'll look at how much that matters to Amazon's bottom line and speak with one shareholder who sees the stock doubling from here. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. 
Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Amazon are down more than 33% this year and 41% from their highs as the retailer kicks off a scaled-down version of its annual Prime Day event. Is Amazon trying to downplay Prime Day? Let's ask Deirdre Bosa. Deirdre? Well, Kelly, let's put it this way. Gone are the days of big stars like Taylor Swift kicking off the event or Lady Gaga live-streaming her beauty line. So in a sense, it has scaled down. The deals, they are still there, but the best ones... They are for the company's own devices. In fact, 21 out of 22 of the top deals rounded up by City Research are for Amazon's own products or Lux-enabled devices. More broadly, as you said it, Prime Day has become a more subdued event than we have seen in recent years. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing for investors. Markets, of course, have been focused on how recession fears, high inflation, overcapacity, how that is all raising costs for the company and hitting the bottom line. So, cutting back on promotional spend around Prime Day, clearing out inventory for its own products, that could help with profitability in the third quarter. And rather than use the event to pick up more Prime members, of course it is doing that as well, but Amazon may also be focusing on harvesting those more than 170 million members it already has signed up. It may want to show off new Prime perks like Grubhub Plus, which users will now get for a year included in their membership. Now, as for trading action in Amazon shares around the annual event, investors may not necessarily be looking for a deal. The stock typically doesn't do much around Prime Day. On the year, though, you said it, Kelly, Amazon shares are down some 30 percent. For some, that may represent a bargain. Back and over to you. They have it later this year as well, right? They're, they're, it's proliferating even as they don't care about it. I don't get it. Yeah, they've got another Prime Day, they've got beauty events, so they're trying to boost sales. And you could argue that maybe it's diluting the impact of the event. But, you know, there is some data that shows that a good number of Americans still actually wait for this Prime Day in the middle of summer to make some of their biggest purchases. I was just saying, I just bought a vacuum myself, and that was not an Amazon vacuum. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, like you said, it is basically all Amazon stuff. Deirdre, send me the link. Yeah, uh, thank you is. very much, our Deirdre Bosa. <laughs> My next guest says Amazon doesn't really need the headache of Prime Day anymore, and he thinks the stock is a double from here. Joining me now is James Chuckmuck, partner and portfolio manager at Clockwise Capital. James, you want to weigh in on what you think is really going on here with Prime Day or days? Sure. I, th I think Prime Day is all about just flexing the platform that they have. And, and if you look at uh, the, the tech sector more broadly, I think what you're going to see is a bifurcation of valuations between true platforms like the Amazons, Apple with their Play Store and uh, or their App Store and, and Google, obviously, with YouTube versus services like Netflix. So I think you will see more valuation support coming toward these platforms. But as it relates to Prime Day, um, I mean, look, it's it's the you're still talking about upwards of $4 billion on a $120 billion base of revenue for the quarter. So that's three to four percentage points of 
growth lift uh, for 2Q that we should see. Uh, so even though you know it is more subdued uh, than in recent past, you know it's it's not in, uh, insignificant in terms of the actual um, contribution to the financial. It's top line growth, but you know some of these markdowns on their own televisions and different mm -hmm. uh, hardware products are pretty deep. So what's it going to do to profit margins? I think profit margins, it, it's not so much on the commerce side. On the commerce side, you're always talking about a single digit mar margin uh, for their retail business. It, it really comes down to, you know, how much contribution can they get from their growth assets where they're investing, uh, like like Amazon Web Services, their, their expanded efforts into grocery, uh, more logistics offerings uh, with their new global delivery services group, as well as their media offerings. So I think on a consolidated basis, as they right-size the company, right-size capacity, and right-size the employee base, things will start to flow through to the bottom line. And, you know, this is a company that, uh, on a normalized basis, if you assume that, you know, they scale back investing, uh, they could contribute upwards of, or pr produce upwards of $7.5 in earnings uh, relative to the, the $2.5 that uh, the street's modeling for next year. So I, I think the, the margin performance will come and start to materialize and crystallize starting this quarter and into the next yeah. couple of quarters. The analysts over at City make a couple of points this afternoon about the stock or about the day. They say Amazon has been uh, up there climbing or, or one of the top apps, free apps available for download. It's a good sign that there's consumer demand. Mm -hmm. They point out that this event is also happening in more countries than ever. I think 21 countries or something like that. So it's global. It's not just about what's going on here in the U.S., yep. but more fundamentally, how do you want these drivers to translate into your base case for Amazon shares to double? Um, what yeah. do they need to do to kind of get more of the investing public on board with that trajectory? Sure. Well, first, you know, it's, Amazon remarkably has become a show me store. You know, they want to see investors want to see that they can actually grow again, you know, versus the low single digit growth numbers that we saw on the commerce side and actually produce profit. Now, they've done both of those really well in the past, you know, oftentimes not at the same time. But, but I think that you will start to see those two things come together. The, the mean reversion in the growth rates will push it back up to the teens by the end of this year. And with the prime day boost, you should be upwards of 20 percent growth uh, by the end of the year. And then you have uh, on the margin side, like we talked about before, which is the right sizing of capacity, the fulfillment centers and whatnot, and uh, the fuel surcharges that they're charging, you know, they should be able to uh, control the expenses much better. And you're seeing a, the company much better at being able to scale up and scale down their expenses as, um, in, in tandem with a demand on a more real-time basis than they have been before. So I think those things coming together, you will start to see a much more handsome growth profile in, in the, on the bottom line. And once you start to see that, in tandem with the uh, the growth numbers coming back into the top line growth numbers coming back into the double digits, yeah. I think that will be what is needed to get to to send the shares materially higher from here. You're buying it at 1.8 times forward sales. I mean, this is this is as cheap as you can get it, and that's why we have no hesitation maintaining it as our largest position in our book. All right, James Chuckmuck, thank you very much uh, for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. And still ahead, this stock has lost half its value since January, tracking for its worst year ever, and now it's shaking up the C-suite again. Is it too late for a turnaround? Plus, billionaire investor Bill Ackman is returning $4 billion to shareholders after failing to find a target. What is the SPAC slowdown signaling? The exchange is back after this.
Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Oh, the S&P and NASDAQ have turned negative again. The Dow hanging on to a 69-point gain down from the session high of 172. And airlines are actually leading the S&P today. American, up 10%. That would be its best day in more than a year and a half. United, Delta, Southwest, Alaska also higher. International travel demand apparently so high that London's Heathrow Airport is now limiting the number of passengers until September. Its CEO says they've seen 40 years of passenger growth in just four months. Incredible. Twitter shares also getting a bump today after that tumultuous few days of trading. They're reiterating they did not violate the merger agreement they set forth with Elon Musk to buy the company. The stock is down 10% since Elon said he was walking away on Friday. It's rebounding about 4% today. And Gap was the mystery chart we showed you before the break. The shares down about 3.5% after the retailer announced its CEO is stepping down effective immediately. And in fact, our Courtney Reagan is here with more. Court, it's almost torture to hear about these chapters in Gap, but that's what makes it so fascinating. I mean, she was there for a couple of years. Old Navy, some of the other assets have obviously struggled how did we get here? There's been a lot of leadership turnover in Gap over the last several years, for sure. So Sonia Single took over as Gap CEO just days, really, before the world shut down for the pandemic in March of 2020. So quite a tenure she's had leading the company. Shares have shed 39% since she took over, compared to a nearly 50% gain in the XRT retail ETF over that same time period. Gap is also reiterating its fairly crummy sales guidance and increased costs for freight while lowering EBIT gar- margin guidance as it slashes prices to clear inventory. It's been a tough two years for Gap, Inc., even with strong consumer demand for apparel. Single has said that merchandise, particularly at Old Navy, was, quote, out of sync with consumers. Old Navy leans into casual inventory. It amped that up just as consumers pivoted, buying more occasion and workwear. The sizing, that was kind of off, too. Supply chain snafus continue to add millions of dollars in additional costs and weeks in delivery time across all of Gapping's brands. Old Navy has been without a CEO since April. Single has been handling that role, too. The company now naming Horatio Barbetto from Walmart Canada to lead the division, which is responsible for the majority of the entire company's sales. And Single said she's, quote, thankful to have the board's support in stepping down, ushering in a new opportunity for fresh perspective and rejuvenated leadership to carry Gap Inc. forward. So she is saying she is stepping down rather than Gap sending her out. She's been with the company for 18 years. But as we mentioned, the last two at the helm have been really, really tough, really for anyone in retail. Absolutely. Well, you've been following the Kohl's saga where it's been trying to figure out what buyer and, you know, 
So I don't know if you can revive a company like Gap and brands like Old Navy. Obviously, Athleta seems to still be doing quite well. Um, But do you think the options get pretty strategic at this point in terms of sales or mergers or that sort of thing? Absolutely. And remember, they were going to spin out Old Navy into its own IPO, publicly traded company. They ended up sort of folding that. And then since then, Old Navy's performance has really sort of ticked down. And that's a a really big, important brand for the entire company. Athleta doing well, but it's the smallest brand. At one point, they were looking at selling Gap branded and Banana Republic branded clothes on Amazon. Not really sure if they're actually going to do that. It was sort of an idea that they threw out. Of course, Sonia had the big partnership with Yeezy, the 10-year deal, which got a lot of buzz, but it doesn't necessarily move the needle in terms of sales. So I, I think this is a very difficult story and frankly has been for a while. It was when she stepped in to take it over. Right. Days before the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. I off. mean, can you imagine no. starting a CEO of an apparel retailer in I, March of 2020? Just so it's very, very difficult and yeah. not just for them. Courtney, thanks. Thanks, Kelly. Courtney Reagan. Let's get to Bertha Coombs now for the CNBC News update. Bertha. Hi, Kelly. Thanks very much. Here's our news at this hour. The House's January 6th committee began its hearing today about 30 minutes ago. It intends to show how Donald Trump's call for protests led to the attack on the Capitol. The panel's chair says when Trump lost the 2020 election, he should have peacefully challenged the results in court if he thought there was fraud. He went the opposite way. He seized on the anger he had already stoked among his most loyal supporters. And as they approached the line, he didn't wave them off. He urged them on. NASA is releasing new full-color images today of distant galaxies taken from the James Webb Space Telescope, giving scientists a lot to work with and some spectacular images. The agency's administrator says every image is a new discovery, giving humanity a view of the universe that has never been seen before. And the HBO corporate drama Succession leads today's Emmy nominations with 25. It will be competing with Squid Game for Best Drama, the first time a non-English language series has been nominated in that category. Kelly? Wow, I loved Succession. I've been thinking about whether to start. I don't know. I need comedies, Bertha. Oh, Hacks. Hacks. Hacks, That is my favorite. Jean Smart, she's superb. (laughs) Superb. We will give it a shot. Bertha, thank you very much, our Bertha Coombs. Coming up, inflation or no inflation? No matter. Slowdown or recession? It doesn't matter either. Earnings growth, earnings slowdown. We don't care. Why? We're going to look at the sector one strategist says will outperform in nearly all of these scenarios after this quick break. Welcome back to The Exchange. Two big inflation readings this week, CPI tomorrow, PPI on Thursday. Higher inflation typically seen as favoring value stocks, which have outperformed this year. But my next guest says it's time to rotate into quality growth, which does best when earnings, inflation, and the economy, broader economic growth, are all falling. Let's bring in Jeff Mills, Bryn Mawr Trust CIO and a CNBC contributor. Did I capture that correctly, Jeff? Yeah, I think that's about right, Kelly. And look, you know, generally speaking, I feel like the, the rally is fading. But if you have to be long like we do, you have to pick your poison. And I think the big theme going into the second half of the year is going to be this rotation 
from value into growth. And it's not growth all across the board. It's not the junk stuff, but it is more of the quality growth. And you know, like you said, uh, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Google, it's these stocks that are priced well and have some semblance of earning stability. You know, when inflation is high and falling, that's when growth tends to do well. When the economy is slowing down, when earnings are coming down, you know, investors are going to look for earnings growth where they can find it. And I think it will be in a lot of these quality growth names. So, you know, whether it's the NASDAQ now failing at the downward sloping 50 day, whether it's the two tens. 210 spread now starting to invert more than it's inverted the entire year. Right. You know, these are things that are telling me that earnings expectations need to come down. And that's why I think you need to favor companies that, that can continue to grow earnings. And you're the third person that, today to tell us you like Amazon. So I'll just make note of that. Google as well as another quality growth name that often comes up. So let's talk about Danaher and Jacobs Engineering, even United Health. How do those fall into a quality growth bucket for you? Yeah, I think when you think about names that are growth at a reasonable price, Danaher is a, a really interesting name. And just from a chart perspective, finding support around that $250 level, I think that's noteworthy. Obviously, 30% off its highs, like a lot of these names. You know, this is a company that makes uh, equipment for drug development, disease testing. So it's tied to biotech spending, which I think is a very good thing long term. You know, whether it's gene therapy, vaccines, you know, molecular medicine in general, but it's certainly a less speculative play on. On biotech and what the company has is a very large install base for their equipment and then they're able to sell this high margin consumables and that's what really drives their revenue that's 70 percent 75 percent actually of their sales so the key for that company is great management to navigate this environment and recurring revenues because of what I just described and a word quickly on I mean when we talk mega cap tech does pretty much all of that fall into quality growth or no yeah, I think, I mean, most of it does. I think you're starting to see some shifts now. You know, is Apple value, is Apple growth? You know, what about Netflix? What about Facebook? But I think generally speaking, when we're talking about the old fang complex that we all think of, you know, those are the companies that have, you know, high return on invested capital, high free cash flow, solid margins. Uh, yeah, so generally speaking, those are the companies that you're going to want to favor in this environment. And like you said, specifically Amazon, Google, these are stocks that have really attractive valuations, really high profitability. Uh, and have got beaten up to the point where I think you know, if you can weather some near-term volatility, you're going to do really well. All right. You can see them chopping around here the past couple months trying to find that bottom. Uh, Jeff, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Jeff thanks, Mills. Kelly. Up next, the world of business has changed a lot over the past year. Which states are keeping up with the times? Scott Cohn is live in CNBC's top state for business for 2022, but we can't know what it is yet, Scott. That's, that's right, Kelly. Every governor wishes there's, that their state could be the top, top state for business. Uh, inflation. There we go. So we'll have another hint about where we are, which state is the top state for business. And also, we'll talk about the category in our study that I get asked about the most. That's coming up on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. CNBC is set to unveil our top state for business tomorrow. Scott Cohn is already live in the mystery state to explain the process and what's new this year. Scott, any clues in that fountain behind you? Um, it's a state that has fountains and a state that has trees. <laughs> so 
Think about that a little bit. Um, we will reveal the top state for business tomorrow morning on Squawk Box, and you can, uh, you can read more about our study and where your state ranks online. The category that I get asked about the most year after year, especially lately, is what we call life, health, and inclusion. It's something that we've measured every year since we started Top States in 2007. We look at things like crime rates, uh, air quality, health care. Lately, we also have looked at inclusiveness, things like voting rights, things like uh, discrimination protections. We do that not out of some political statement, but because that's what the states are talking about and it's what companies are talking about. One thing that we will not measure this year because it's too much in flux is the issue of abortion rights. But it is something that governors and companies are talking about and talking about the economic case to be made one way or the other. Listen to what a couple of governors that we've spoken to on our journey uh, have, have said about it. Governor Mike DeWine, a Republican of Ohio, where abortion is uh, in most cases illegal, and Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, where abortion is legal, at least for now. The biggest economic decision a woman will make in her lifetime is when and whether to have a child. Business knows they want women to come back into the workforce after the she session of the pandemic. To get women back in the workforce, you cannot start by taking away their fundamental rights to make their own health care decisions. Abortion is something where reasonable people are on both sides of the issue, very well-intended people, people of good faith. It is a very, very, very divisive issue. What I've emphasized in Ohio is our need to, while we understand we have people on both sides, our need to focus on what we can agree on. What we can agree on is we need to help kids. Again, abortion is not part of our study this year, but it is something that we will keep looking at as this debate plays out and as laws come into focus. Uh, you can read more about our study at topstates.cnbc.com and about our methodology, again, in this key category and all the other uh, categories of competitiveness. So where am I? Here's another Top States diabolical hint. Bragging rights. Mm. bragging rights. The state that is the top state does get bragging rights. Is there a hidden message there? Well, stay I'm tuned and find out. We reveal it tomorrow it morning on Squawk Box. Scott, this is the 15th <laughs> year we've done it. Who, if I can ask, just kind of you know, set the scene here, who's won the most? The state that has won the most is your home state of Virginia. Mm -hmm. It has won five times. Uh, there are seven different states that have been able to claim this title. We'll see if we add an eighth one to the list or if it is another repeat tomorrow. Uh, oftentimes it's some of the usual suspects, but we've had some interesting surprises over the year as well. I look forward to it very much, like you said, uh, kind of a reflection of the changes we've had in uh, the economy and in the culture. Scott, we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Our Scott okay. Cohn. Coming up, it's been an ugly year for SPACs. The CNBC SPAC Post Deal Index, which tracks those that have made deals, is down 66% over the past year. So maybe Bill Ackman investors are better off now that he's closing up and returning their money. And speaking of throwing in the towel, Bitcoin's sharp decline has many casual investors giving up. Will crypto itself be a fading fad? The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. Bill Ackman is closing up his SPAC and returning $4 billion back to investors, saying he couldn't find a suitable deal. Leslie Picker joins us now with more. Just no nothing out there, Leslie? <laughs> this was a 
pretty big SPAC, Kelly. So the actual supply of targets is pretty limited when you think about it. But as you mentioned, Pershing Square Tontine Holdings, that's the SPAC managed by billionaire Bill Ackman, said it couldn't find a merger target and is returning capital to shareholders. The news not too surprising given the variety of high-profile headwinds that have faced the SPAC. Tontine initially pursued a tie-up for a minority stake in Universal Music Group, but scrapped it because the SEC was skeptical it met whether or not it met the requirements for a SPAC deal. And then there was a lawsuit questioning whether the SPAC structure violates the Investment Company Act of 1940 because it holds securities. Tontine being the biggest ever was the first SPAC targeted in a series of similar claims. And then its deadline was quickly approaching with Tontine having initially raised $4 billion from investors in July of 2020. It had just two years to find a target. Pershing Square notes in a letter to shareholders that it launched the vehicle during the, quote, depths of the pandemic, but the rapid recovery of capital markets and our economy were good for America, but unfortunate for PSTH, that's a ticker symbol there, as it made the conventional IPO market a strong competitor and preferred alternative for high-quality businesses seeking to go public. Perhaps the real legacy, though, of Tontine is a microcosm of that frenzy and fizzle that befell the entire SPAC ecosystem as the largest ever. It was really this pinnacle of excitement surrounding the SPAC model. And now, with public investors shunning companies that have gone public this way, our post-SPAC index is down more than 50% this year. It's becoming even more challenging for SPACs to find and sign deals when you look at numbers like that, when you look at a chart like that, that doesn't really make the bull case uh, very strong for no. these types of companies. Kel. I imagine at some point those investors are just happy to get their money back. Uh, Leslie, we appreciate it. Sure. Our Leslie Picker reporting. Now, yeah. she said the CNBC post-SPAC index, this is of the SPACs that have completed a deal, and its returns are pretty terrible, down more than 50% this year and coming off its worst month since inception. At least four SPACs have liquidated this year uh, so far, according to our data, compared with just one all of last year. Is this the start of a much bigger wave? Here to discuss is Chris Senek. He's chief investment strategist at Wolf Research, and he told us back in February that the SPAC bubble was bursting. Chris, um, is it bursting for good? Uh, hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Yes, I think it's bursting in large part for good. I think it was a byproduct of the easy money era that we had with physical and, and monetary stimulus. And when we normalized to a new environment, um, I think the, the large back issuance that we've seen and large back deals we've seen uh, will be uh, long gone. There are still 600 SPACs searching for an acquisition target. Is that right? And shouldn't this be now a ripe time for finding cheap, attractive targets? We were just talking with Courtney a little while ago about Gap. I'm not saying that, you know, I understand they have to be private, and but there's plenty of distressed assets out there, aren't there? There are. I mean, there's there's more and more every day. I mean, small caps, if you know, have been decimated more so than the broader market. And I think there's a just a valuation issue, a kind of bid-ask, wide bid-ask spread, where investors maybe think the valuation of the business is one thing, and the companies or, or the sellers think it's something else, where they use you know what it used to trade at perhaps six, 12 months ago, and had haven't kind of come to reality that the, the valuations are, are lower and will likely stay that way. I also have to imagine if you are a company that was hoping for a traditional IPO or some kind of exit. You know, maybe you've raised some funds, maybe you need to, you know, uh, give a payout to your early employees and so forth. Wouldn't a SPAC still represent a good liquidation opportunity and not a good liquidity opportunity? 
Yeah, well, it is. And they're going to have their place, right? So they're still, I think, in the long term, going to exist in the market. They're just going to be smaller deals, maybe more geared towards early stage biotech and the tech sector uh, more in general. The other issue, which is, I think, put a wet blanket on SPACs, has been the proposed SEC rules on SPACs, which make them more in align with IPO disclosure requirements. You can't use those hockey stick forward projections in your numbers anymore. So I think companies will sit there and say, should we really do a SPAC or should we just do a traditional IPO, which may be a little bit simpler and, and, and easier kind of going forward? Anything you'd say, so for investors who are always hunting for opportunity, some of the SPACs that did complete are trading at a penalty because of that. They've been tarred with this brand name, for instance. Should we go looking for opportunities in an asset class like that? Or do you think that it is a red flag across the board? No, I think you can't paint all SPACs with the same brush. There are some SPACs that went public. They're good, real businesses. They're generating cash flow. They're trading on gap earnings. They're not trading on total addressable market or, or revenue. And I think as we see more and more volatility over the coming weeks and months, you can pick up some good businesses at attractive prices. You just have to be very careful. You have to focus on profitability, low leverage, higher earnings quality, and what is currently going on in the business, not what might happen in three to five years. And, yeah. um, and a good number of businesses that went public that are, that are decent. No, we'll, we'll bring you back. Maybe we'll do three buys and a bail SPAC edition uh, just for that purpose. Chris, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Chris Senek of Wolf. Crypto Winter is chasing out the Bitcoin Taurus as well. Up next, what their drop-off means for Coinbase, whose shares are up 1.5% today. Stay with us on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. Bitcoin back below 20,000 today, down 57% this year. It's turning off a lot of smaller crypto investors, which could be bad news for Coinbase, a company that's already experienced a lot of bad news with the shares down nearly 80% this year. Kate Rooney looking at the demise of the Bitcoin tourists. Kate? Hey, Kelly, that's right. Bitcoin tourists meeting those casual crypto traders. This cohort is leaving the market at the fastest rate in four years. One way to measure that is Bitcoin's network activity. Higher activity is seen typically as a sign of demand. Low activity, on the other hand, usually means a lack of demand. These activity levels are down about 13%. From November, they're now at the same range as back in the deepest bear market phase of 2018. This is according to data from Glassnode. Analysts there say it signals a, quote, near complete purge of market tourism. And long-term holders are really now the last group standing. This is not great news for exchanges, Kelly. Those guys really rely on trading activity and those fees for revenue. Exchanges' Bitcoin balances are draining at record levels. Coinbase continues to see outflows. According to Glassnode, its global competitor, meanwhile, Binance, just overtook Coinbase as the biggest holder of Bitcoin across any of the exchanges. Analysts tell me this exodus from exchanges may also be due to some of the jitters we've seen around storing investor Bitcoin. We've seen other exchanges struggle with liquidity and then freeze some customer deposits. That's pushing some to what they call self-custody or holding their own crypto. Coinbase, Robinhood, and some of the privately held exchanges still make the majority of their revenue from those trading fees. Some of the less uh, casual traders leaving the market and less money on exchanges is seen as a major headwind. And it's a big roadblock for Bitcoin prices. More demand and that higher network activity 
is typical of a bull market. Kelly, it's not the case lately. Cryptocurrencies are coming off their worst month since 2011. Back to you. Well, and as you mentioned, it's not just the people have been burned, but even the ones who are still believers are looking at some of the funds that have been gated on other platforms and thinking maybe they want to self-custody. It's still very difficult to do, though, for the most part. That, that is one of the big takeaways is what we've seen with this liquidity crisis, whether it's at the hedge funds, issues with counterparties. The big takeaway is that if you are a long-term holder, you're not looking to sell or trade actively. A lot of some of the bigger holders, especially the whales, as you might call them, tend to move their money off of exchanges for reasons like that, liquidity issues, potentially not having access to their money. And then cybersecurity is another issue that people worry about if it's not a trusted exchange or even if it is. The thought is, why not hold it offline where it's seen as safer? But right. it's, it's not easy to do, though. You're no, right, Kel. No, it's, uh, it's certainly not. Not your keys, not your coin, as Caitlin <laughs> exactly. Long and the others always say. Kate, thank you very much. Our Kate Rooney. Speaking of assets with big declines, the metals are on their way down. Gold, silver, copper, platinum all falling. We'll look at what that means on power lunch, which begins right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.